Welcome to the Hydrogen Struggles Leadership Podcast, the premier provider of leadership consulting, culture shaping, and senior level executive search services. Every day, we're privileged to talk with fascinating people who are shaping the future through their leadership and vision. Each episode, you'll hear a different perspective from thought leaders and innovators. Thanks for listening to the Hydrogen Struggles Leadership Podcast. Hi, I'm Liz Simpson, a partner in Hydrix New York office and a member of our financial services practice. In today's podcast, I'm talking to Colin Walsh, CEO and founder of Varo Money, the first disruptive mobile banking business helping customers transact, save, and manage their finances with a fee-free philosophy for a mobile lifestyle. Prior to founding Varo, Colin worked around the world for large corporations holding senior positions in American Express, Lloyd's Banking Group, Wells Fargo, and GE Capital Card Services. Colin, welcome, and thank you for taking the time to speak with us today. Thanks, Liz. Well, first off, it's great to be here with you on this podcast. Colin, you've worked within the financial services space in consumer-centric organizations for most of your career. In your view, what makes particular industries vulnerable to disruption? When you think about uh, industries headed towards disruption, the thing you want to look for are large markets, you know, particularly ones where there's sort of excess profits being earned despite uh, potentially really high cost structures. Um, and also markets that aren't really serving their customers very well, where they've started to turn more inward and really losing focus on those customers. They tend to be the most ripe for disruption, as we've seen in industry after industry, as new technology innovators who are very customer-centric have gotten, uh, have made great inroads and in many cases really have turned those industries upside down. Let's talk about banking. The banking landscape in particular is rapidly shifting and is ripe for disruption. Colin, why do you feel that banking, one of the largest industries in the world, has allowed itself to be ripe for disruption? Well, pretty much for all the reasons I just mentioned. So first off, it's a $5 trillion global industry. So if you think of the, the profit pools and 1.5 trillion just here in the US, that represents seven and a half percent of GDP. And if you think of some of the things that are broken in this market, um, first off, there's a lot of high fees. Oftentimes banks are being rewarded for consumer failure. And that is a real recipe for dissatisfaction, which is another real big issue issue um, for, for these banks is that if you look at the MPS scores, um, they're really very low compared to um, technology innovators. Um, also, they have very high cost structures. So typical banks' cost to income ratio is about 58%, um, and that's because it's supporting a lot of old technology. They're very people intensive. Uh, they've got branch networks, ATM networks. They handle cash. So things that are just very cost, cost intensive that um, upstart challengers really don't have a lot of those expenses. Um, in addition to that, there's a lot of oversupply. There's about, I think the latest thing I read, there's about 79,000 physical branches in the U.S. and about 2 million people working in them. So there's, you know, compared to, you know, some of these, um, you know, newer upstarts like ourselves where we don't rely on physical bricks and mortar. Um, and you think about how often you go into a branch and there's nobody there other than the people that work there. So, I mean, I think there is really an oversupply situation. Um, and then, unfortunately, the last 
thing that really makes, particularly here in the U.S., but I think it, it resonates uh, globally as well, is a loss of trust. In the U.S., in the last 10 years, banks have paid over $240 billion in fines to regulators because of misdeeds. So, I mean, those sort of stats all sort of add up to, uh, you know, an interesting sort of recipe for disruption. Colin, the typical Silicon Valley story usually leads with a young techie with little experience in that industry who comes flying in to disrupt a traditional business. We've seen many attempts at this in financial services, but few successes. In the case of Aro, and you specifically, the model is somewhat different. You and your early leadership team were more experienced with deep financial services experience, and now you are hiring techies. Do you think there's something specific to fintech that potentially flips the classic startup narrative? Well, I think in my inner voice, I like to think of myself as a young startup techie flying in to disrupt an industry. But in reality, I'm I'm a bit older. So, as you say, um, you know, the, the, it is a different model. And but there was an article last month in July's Harvard Business Review where they said the average age of a successful startup founder is 45. So I I took some comfort in that. Um, and so yes, we are a little bit on the older side in terms of my senior team, but we're also people with a lot of experience both in financial services as well as in consumer technology. And I think it's important, particularly in an industry as complex as banking, that you have to have the experience knowing how to operate in a regulated environment. It's also really important that you know how to make money and that you have a sustainable business model. Oftentimes, you know, despite the best intentions and the biggest dreams and visions, people who haven't actually been in the business for a long time um, can be somewhat naive to what it takes to actually get the business started, um, the actual cost structure associated with running these businesses, and, um, and then how do you generate revenue in a way that's positive for customers and positive for your business and your investors. I remember when I was uh, first pitching Varo, um, I had a VC said to me, do you have any idea the unit costs associated with standing up a checking account? I said, well, actually, I kind of do have an idea because I've been doing this for 25 years. And so, but having the kind of the depth of the knowledge is definitely very helpful when it comes to um, setting up and, and really getting scale and traction in a, in a successful business in this space. As you and your team have been building VARO money, what are some of the skills that you've recognized that are necessary to lead through change, and what type of talent have you been seeking? It's a great question, Liz. Uh, and because, as I mentioned earlier, I have staffed my group with people that are tend to be a combination of seasoned um, executives that have been in financial services, as well as consumer technology, as well as people that are representative of the demographic that we're serving, which tend to be more um, younger, millennial-type folks. Uh, it's really a diverse uh, melting pot of talent, if you would say. Um, but the things that they all have in common are a real bias to action. Um, I really look for people who are willing to fail fast and learn. It's in, in this business, it's such a race against time because, you know, A, you're, you're starting a company, so you're burning cash. You have competitors that are coming into the market. So you really have to move quickly and you have to learn how to develop products and product features and ship them quickly. And you see whether customers like them or don't like them. And you take that feedback very quickly and you iterate. Um, so it's important for people to be agile, um, also to constantly be challenging 
challenging the status quo and looking for ways to make things better, um, resilience is really important because, you know, there's good days and there's bad days. And, you know, you just have to keep rolling with it and you have to keep iterating. Um, and then the other thing, particularly when um, in a startup environment, taking people who've been in big companies, um, the willingness to actually do real work. And um, it's amazing to me, and I spent so many years inside the uh, more traditional environment, that people think going to meetings is work. Well, it's not. <laughs> actually sitting down and, you know, writing code or writing marketing materials or um, figuring out how to build the financial model or pitch something to a regulator, like that, that is real work. And, and it's really hard for people that have just spent many years of their career just sort of telling other people what to do. And then suddenly they arrive in a place like this and they're looking for someone to have a meeting with. And I said, well, you can have a meeting with your laptop because you're the one who has to get this thing done. And I think it's a real wake-up call for people who've spent a lot of years in the old world. Technology is an enabler to your business. What are some of the advantages this has driven in your business model in order to deliver your product to customers? Yeah, technology is huge. I mean, I don't think Varo would have worked 10 or 15 years ago. So if I think of how things have evolved in terms of the cloud and being able to have all our technology um, in a cloud environment, being able to use open APIs to connect to third-party partners and be able to move data back and forth, to be operating and developing on mobile platforms that have you know, fairly defined playbooks in terms of how you introduce features and how you iterate on features. I also think from a security perspective, um, in terms of the advances that have been made in terms of data protection and encryption, um, how we think about digital identity and the fact that we have the mobile device so we can triage in terms of other different types of form factors to um, really verify that the person is who they say they are and that the people that are using our product are uh, the people that we, we think they are. And so uh, I'd say the other thing, which is huge, is just overall customer experience. So technology allows us to aggregate data so customers can have a full financial view and they can see all their accounts linked into the Varo app. Um, we also use machine learning algorithms to help predict uh, cash flow so we can forecast whether you're going to have enough money at the end of the month and be able to make some recommendations if you're going to um, fall short on cash. We also have introduced trackers that help people track their spending and be able to set goals. Um, and then tools like auto savings so that money can be deducted out of your pay or every time you swipe your debit card, we can round up into a high yield savings account. So all those sort of really special features that make Varo unique are all enabled through technology. Let's touch upon regulation. How has regulation served as a barrier in protecting different industries? When you think of evolution and progress within a customer-centric industry such as banking, to what extent has regulation served as a barrier to change? So the regulatory environment is certainly very challenging. Um, so if we look back over the last eight years, so since 2010, there have only been eight charters, new de novo bank charters approved in the United States, and only one of them was a national charter. So as I think you're aware, Varro um, is uh, in the process of trying to uh, set up our own national bank and um, are going through the process with, with the regulators, and it's going very well, but it's a, it's a tedious process because naturally um, the regulators are quite risk averse and they have a very high bar. So to be successful in this environment, it really does require, as we talked about earlier, 
that deep knowledge and expertise on topics such as governance, things like capital and liquidity, uh, third-party risk management. Um, there's a whole variety of um, uh, topics that require not just a superficial knowledge, but a really deep knowledge of how you are going to build um, the right culture, the right sort of risk culture, um, the awareness of the risks and how you're going to manage them so that you can grow profitable and, and in a safe and a sound manner. And so all of these things are what the regulators are looking for. So it does become a huge barrier to entry. Um, but from my perspective and my team's perspective, um, the benefit is well worth the effort that goes into um, actually becoming chartered as a national bank. Colin, why Varo? From a timing, mission, and values perspective, why is Varo going to be a trailblazer for enabling disruption? Well, it, it's that's a, almost a very personal question for me because you know, as I mentioned, I spent 25 years working for some of the leading brands in um, the traditional banking world and and had a great career. I have a number of people that I'm very close to who I have a lot of respect for, but I felt that the time had come for a new bank to come into the world that really was founded with a purpose to help people improve their financial lives through technology. And and for me, it feels like Varo was kind of the right time and the right place with the right strategy. And we've been executing, um, you know, step by step against how we build product, how we listen and iterate with our customers, um, how we focus on the things that are going to actually make a difference in our customers' lives. Uh, and I feel we're having a lot of success. I mean, this is a huge market that's full of a lot of unloved competitors. And the fact that we do have this sort of clear social purpose to help customers improve their financial lives. I think the timing could not be better. There will have been many lessons throughout your career in how best to drive customer centricity in a business. What is the one that stands out for you as being essential to delivering success for customers and the business alike? The most important thing for me is to listen to your customers. So we've set out several listening posts. Um, you know, I, every time there's a customer responds to an NPS survey, I see it on a Slack channel. Um, all day long, I get feeds around um, something we call user voice, where customers are requesting certain features or commenting on features in the app. So it's this constant deluge of information from our customers telling us how we can improve. Um, app reviews. I mean, I, every time we get a five-star review, I feel great and I share it with the team and we all see those um, coming through, but also every time we get a one-star review, we look at that as an amazing opportunity to learn of how we could do better. And so we take all that feedback incredibly seriously, and I think this is, to me, the most fundamental part of building a customer-centric business is creating that connection with your customer, helping them feel part of a community that you're, they're being listened to and that you're building on their behalf. Colin, thank you very much for taking time out of your busy schedule and for participating in this Hydrogen Struggles Leadership Podcast. It's been my pleasure. Thanks so much, Liz. Thanks for listening to the Hydrogen Struggles Leadership Podcast. To make sure you don't miss more future shaping ideas and conversations, please subscribe to our channel on the podcast app. And if you're listening via LinkedIn, Twitter, or YouTube, why not share this with your connections? Until next time.